If you've been around for any period of time in the church here, you'll know we've been working our way systematically uh, through the book of Philippians over this term. Uh, If you've been looking at your kind of term planner and checking out the talks each Sunday, officially this is the conclusion of our Philippians series. However, uh, we're going to go on for another two weeks after this as I go back to a few verses we didn't do full justice to uh, earlier on in the series. But uh, this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible with you, maybe you could reach for it now. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries. The words should appear on the screens behind me at the appropriate moments. But while you're finding the passage... I want to spend a little time giving you a bit of background to what I want us to be looking at today. Church in Philippi, amongst other things, was renowned for its phenomenal generosity. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, for example, the Philippians are held up as an example to the Corinthian church of what a good, giving, generous church should look like in practice. It's as though Paul's saying to the Corinthians, if you want to know how to give... Look at the church in Philippi. This is how they do it. They're they're a model church. You would do very well to imitate them. Because when it comes to generosity, they're just exemplary. Now here's my dream. I want us as a church, I want Church Central to be like the Philippians in this whole area. Paul was able to say of them in 2 Corinthians 8, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. I want us as a church to be like that. I want each of us to excel in this whole privilege of giving. I want us as a church to have a reputation for being overwhelmingly generous. But I really don't want it to be driven by a sense of guilt or duty or obligation. I want it to be overflowingly joyful, faith-fueled, grace-filled giving. And so there are a few things that we need to understand by, by way of introduction which I believe the Philippians understood. The first one's this. God's a giver. God is a giver. All the other false religions on the face of the earth have a God who's pretty much, largely speaking, a taker. It's like, if you want God to really love you, you've got to do something for him first. If you want God to care for you, you need to do something special for him. He takes from you. you. You've got to give so much money. You've got to take a pilgrimage to this sacred place. You've got to go to purgatory and pay him back for your sin. You've got to get reincarnated in order to pay back your karmic debt. It's like you owe God and somehow you've got to pay him back if you want to be in his good books. It's as though God's a taker. But in Christianity, our God is altogether different from that. God's a giver. He's a giver. He's incredibly generous. I want to consider for a moment what Jesus was like when he walked this earth. He fed hungry people even though he himself was poor. He was incredibly generous even though he didn't have a whole lot. He healed huge crowds of people. He was a giver. And he still is. Although we've sinned, Jesus gives us 
his sinless life. He gives us his substitutionary death to pay the penalty for our sin. He gives us his bodily resurrection for our own eternal life and our future resurrection. He pours out, he lavishes the Holy Spirit on us to empower us for a new life. He gives us the church for friendship and family and community and spiritual growth. He gives us the Bible for truth. He gives us all kinds of skills and gifts and abilities and talents in order for us to do ministry and encourage and strengthen and sharpen one another. And the good news is, we don't have to pay for any of it. The whole basis for our relationship with God is grace. It's not dependent on how good we are or how worthy we are or how much we can give to him. It's all about his undeserved, unearned, unmerited love, mercy and forgiveness to us. And so the first thing we celebrate and the first thing that we really need to get our heads around and understand before we approach the subject of our finances is that our God is a giver. And he is incredibly, overwhelmingly, phenomenally generous to us. Second thing that we need to understand, first one is God's a giver. The second one is we are stewards. We're stewards. It's like we're to take the skills and the talents and the gifts and the abilities and the resources and the money that God has given to us And we're called by him to be good stewards of them all. Now, if you're a little uncertain, a little unsure what this means, what it looks like in practice, helpfully Jesus tells us a story in Luke 16 that explains something of the difference between a good steward and a bad steward. He tells us there that a good steward pretty much is someone who you can give a whole lot of resources to and most of the time they'll multiply them. And a bad steward is someone who doesn't do a whole lot with what's been entrusted to them. And Jesus says there that if I can trust you with a little, then I can trust you with much. Now, I hasten to add, I'm not teaching prosperity theology here. I'm not talking about being generous so that God in some way is duty-bound or obligated to increase your standard of living. I'm not saying that. I'm not teaching that. But what I am saying is that for those of us who are faithful, since we're good stewards, it would make a whole lot of sense that God would be more likely to entrust to us more of his resources. Let me give you an example. God's a loving father. We're described often in the Bible as his children. So I'll use an example from my own family, from my own home got two children on my own, two sons, Nathan and Joel. Let's say, as a family, we run out of milk and bread. So what I do, I, I call Nathan to me and I hand him a £10 note. I say, okay, son, I want you to go to the shop for me. I want you to go and get me some milk and some bread. And because I'm generous and because I love you as your dad, get yourself a treat while you're at it. Nathan comes back sometime later. No money no milk, no bread, just a huge bag full of sweets. Now I look at him and I say, Nathan, what happened? And Nathan says, sorry dad, you just didn't give me enough money. And I say, well, 
I know there's inflation that's kind of around 5% at the moment, but I'm pretty sure I did give you enough money. In fact, I'm pretty sure you stole it from me. But because I'm trusting and because I love you and because you're my son, here's another £10. Learn the lesson. Be a good steward. Get out on your bike, go to the shop, get those few things for your mum and dad. Sometime later, Nathan comes back. No money, no bread, no milk, bottle of Coke, huge bag of popcorn, a number of DVDs. Where's the milk and bread? Well, you know, Dad, I'm going to need a bit more money. You didn't give me quite enough. In fact, I think you're cheating me. I've read the promises in the Bible, and good fathers provide for their children. So how about it? Now, what do I do? Well, being incredibly loving and very tender towards my son and being a gracious father, I I, I look in my pocket, I've got another £10. I hand Nathan another £10. I say, look, son, this time, make sure you get some milk and get some bread. In fact, I write it down on a piece of paper, just in case he forgets. I spell it out clearly in bold print. Milk and bread. Nathan comes back. One loaf of bread but no milk, and a whole load of Ben and Jerry's. What happened? Well, I didn't have enough. I only had enough to get the bread. Now, the point is, and there is a point, the point is that at some point, I would take 10 pounds and I would give it to my other son. I'd give it to Joel and see if I could get a loaf of bread for less than 30 pounds. Joel, (laughs) Joel, look, you go to the shop. Let's see how it goes with you. You see, God is looking for good stewards. And if we're just like selfish kids who keep blowing the money saying, you didn't give me enough, you didn't give me enough, I haven't got enough, at some point, it would make sense that God would entrust his resources to someone who is way more faithful and a much better steward. You know, our world is way too focused on the whole question, are you rich or are you poor? The Bible's not so interested in that. The Bible's focused on, are you a good steward or a bad steward? Not so obsessed with how wealthy you are, how rich you are. It's all about stewardship. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, Jesus was rich, but for our sake, he became poor. Jesus was rich in heaven, lived in the most amazing place, adored and worshipped by angels. He wasn't poor, but he freely chose to humble himself, became a man, entered into human history. Though he is eternal God, he was born to a poor teenage virgin in a barn. He was adopted by a carpenter. Presumably, for the first 30 years of his life, he worked alongside his dad as a carpenter, making a very simple income. And then, if you like, he went into ministry. And for three years, he was pretty much homeless, broke, and poor. Now today, Jesus is in heaven. I think it's fair to say he's rich again. But he was willing to give up all of that, to lay it aside, to become poor, in order to be a good steward, to love you, and to love me, and to serve us, and to give us as a free gift in his grace, salvation, and eternal life, and forgiveness for our sins. Now, the church in Philippi, they had a really good understanding of these truths. And the result was that it changed how they viewed their possessions and their finances and their wealth. 
It freed them up completely to be incredibly generous. If you remember, Paul is in prison, flat broke, facing possible death. And the Philippians were so concerned for him that they took a special offering and raised an incredible amount of money as they gave it to a guy called Epaphroditus who was entrusted with the task of taking the gift to Paul in prison. And Paul was so overwhelmed, he was so grateful that he wrote a letter. That's the one that eventually we will be looking at this morning. And he gave this letter to Epaphroditus to take back to the church in Philippi. So I want us to read these things that Paul says to the Philippian church. And I'm going to intersperse the reading of this passage with a number of questions just to kind of drive this home into your specific situation. Let's pick up what he says to them, beginning in chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Here's the first question. Are you content? Are you content? Are you financially content? Are you materially content? Are you content with what you've got right now? Now, the opposite of being content is coveting, which, if you remember, is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments that God has laid out. So it's a big deal with God. But in our culture, coveting really isn't something that most people are aware of or even consider as being a sin. In fact, much of our culture exists to get us to be discontented so that we'll covet more, so that then we'll be bad stewards, so that then we'll spend money we don't really have or we'll steward our money towards things that we don't really need. So the whole message of the advertising and marketing industry, be discontent, be discontent, be discontent, covet this, covet that, covet the other thing. I mean, how many of you, You've bought an iPod, or in the past, you bought an iPod, and they came out with a more powerful, different colored iPod. Then they came out with an iPod with video, and you kept on buying them. And then they introduced, wonder of wonders, the iPhone, and you bought the iPhone. And then the iPhone 4 came out, and now you hear news that there's an even better iPhone coming out later on in the autumn, and you've already kind of put the date in your diary, and you're going to be camping out outside the Apple store. You've got to have one. At what point, at what point are you going to hold your hands up and just say, I quit. It's like every other month, every other month, there's a new gadget or there's a new upgrade. Enough's enough. Now, just for the sake of integrity, in the previous site, my wife was glaring at me through that whole thing, kind of thinking, what a hypocrite, because I like my gadgets as well. But at what point, for the sake of integrity, at what point do we, do I, do you say, enough's enough. Now, I'm not saying it's a sin to work hard. I'm not saying it's a sin to make money. I'm not saying it's a sin to have nice stuff. I'm not even saying it's a sin to own the latest iPhone. But you want to be a good steward 
Because at the end of the day, it's not about whether you're rich or poor. It's not about whether you own the latest stuff. It's about whether or not you're a good steward with whatever it is that God has entrusted to you. And key to this is learning the secret of being content. Now, because of the culture we live in, we're going to be constantly bombarded with temptations to be bad stewards. You deserve better. You can have better. Everyone else has got one. You just can't live without one of these. But as followers of Jesus, we operate with a completely different value system. Ultimately, our contentment doesn't come from our stuff. It's derived from Jesus, which frees us up from this whole desire to acquire. This is challenging to anyone. Listen, if you're a coveter, you need to repent of that as a sin. If not for your own well-being, certainly out of love for God. It's that serious. Contentment, Paul says, is very important if you want to be a good steward. He goes on in verse 14. He says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Remember, Paul's broke in prison. And what he says about the Philippians is that they were attentive to his need. So here's my next question for you. Question number two. Who have you helped recently? Who have you helped? God laid on your heart to help so-and-so, and you didn't just think about it, you did it. You served those people. You went to their house and served them practically or physically or tangibly in some way. Maybe you cooked them a meal or lent them your car or babysat for them or brought them some groceries or did their gardening or gave them some money. When was the last time that you did something like that? Paul's saying here, he appreciates the Philippians because they were attentive to his needs. I didn't wait for him to get in touch and beg them to help out. They, they paid attention and they took the initiative. I've got to say, I love the fact that we've got so many people in this church who are like that. Over the years, we've had people approach us and say, well, I love to help people. I'm just not always aware who needs help. So if there's ever a big need, you know, someone's sick or single mum needs help or whatever it might be, could you let me know? Could you just bring it discreetly to my attention? Because I'd like to try, if I can, to help them out. It's like God has blessed me financially and I'd like to use what I've got in order to bless others. I want to say that's a great attitude. It's a wonderful attitude. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I dream of having that kind of wealth to be able to do that kind of thing, but that's not really the context I find myself in. Maybe God hasn't blessed you with an abundance of money to be able to do that kind of thing. I want to say there is still a very valuable contribution for you to make. There are so many people in this church who cook people meals or help out practically when there's a need. I want to thank you. Genuinely, honestly, I want to thank you for all you do. And I want to encourage you to keep looking for more opportunities to help others. See, that's part of what it means to be a steward. A steward is constantly on the lookout, looking for good opportunities to take the resources that God has given to them and use them in a way that helps people and honors him. Are you helping other people? Are you currently sharing what you've got with others? 
Paul keeps going. Verse 15. It says, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. What Paul's saying is, basically, they're generous. And they have been generous for many, many years. Ever since he planted that church, any time he's going to do ministry, they send him a gift. Any time he's planting a new church, they send him a gift. Any time he's experiencing hardship, they send him a gift. These are people who love Jesus, who love seeing the gospel reach out to others, and they're constantly looking for opportunities to give. Now, just in case you're thinking, well, it was a whole lot easier back then. I mean, life was simpler, much easier for them. Don't forget what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8. He described how their generosity welled up out of their poverty. These really weren't rich people. These were just incredibly good stewards. You see, the myth is, God, once you make me rich, then I'll be a good steward. Then I'll be more generous. Students, maybe, you could think like that. I mean, it's irre- this teaching is irrelevant for me. I mean, when I get my first pay packet, when I've cleared my student loan, uh, when I'm kind of earning a proper salary, then I'll kind of recall this, this talk, and then I'll try and apply it. No, 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 no. It's not about how rich you are. Even now, even with the little you have, it's about how good a steward you are. I say to you, if you're a bad steward, even with a little, why would God entrust more to you? I'm not saying here that you give to God in order to get. I'm not saying that. That's greed. What I'm saying is that you give to God hoping that he will entrust more to you so you could then give more. We're not talking about prosperity here. We're talking about stewardship. We're not talking about getting rich. We're talking about helping as many people as we can. So here's my next question for you. Are you pleased with your giving to the church? Are you pleased? Are you satisfied with your giving to God? Are you? Some of you, maybe you're very encouraged because last year perhaps you had a certain number, a certain amount in mind and by God's grace you've met that goal or maybe even exceeded it and as you put together your budget or your financial plan for this year you've increased your giving a bit. It it might just be a really small increase but you've been able to see your giving increase year after year after year and so you're sitting there feeling pretty encouraged right now and you should be encouraged. Again, I want to take the opportunity to thank all of you who regularly give to the church. There are so many people in the church who faithfully, sacrificially keep on giving, enabling us to to keep pressing into all the things that God has called us to do. I want to say thank you. Thank you so much. I guess there are some of you who may not know what you gave in the last year. I mean, it's all quite random. It just depends what you've got in your pocket at any given time. Some of you are thinking, well, I know precisely what I gave. I can do the math. Zero plus zero equals zero. And I'm not wanting to pressure you, not wanting to condemn you or make you feel guilty to to give out of a sense of obligation. In all honesty, I'd rather you didn't give anything if you can't do it joyfully and with faith. But I would urge you 
to at least consider what you're giving at the moment. Over the last 12 months, what did you give to God? In fact, that's almost the wrong way to put it. How about putting it this way? Out of what God gave to you, out of what God has entrusted to you, how much did you keep? How's that for a question? A bit more challenging, a bit more convicting that way around. Why not ask God, how much of what he has given to you, how much of what he has entrusted to you, he wants you to give to the church? Why don't you do that? Just by way of an aside, we're in the process of changing our church bank account. I won't go into all the reasons, largely because this gets recorded and goes out on the internet, and I don't want to be sued by corporate lawyers for uh, in any way discrediting the particular bank that we are currently with. But they haven't been great. So we're changing our bank account. So if you currently give to the church, and a few people here do, if you currently give by standing order, we're going to be contacting you over the next month or so with details of our new bank account. I just want to say, it's a great opportunity to review what we're giving and to allow God to speak to us about stepping out with more faith in what we give. I want to encourage you to do that. Let's keep going. This is what Paul says next. Verse 17 not that I'm looking for a gift. The motivation all of this, it's not pleading for more money. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. I want you to get this. He says, they are a fragrant offering. They're an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The language that Paul uses here is the language of worship. The giving of the Philippians was a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So here's the next question. Do you worship your money or do you worship with your money? Do you worship your money or do you worship with your money? Because basically, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the takers and there are the givers. Those who worship money, they're takers. They're not givers. All their decisions are based, they're governed by what will bring them the most money. Now again, I really don't want you to hear me wrong. I can't to spell it out just in case you hear me wrong. I'm not saying that it is a sin to make money. There are plenty of holy people in the Bible, godly people who loved God and were wealthy. However, they didn't do it by being discontented and by being covetous and from stealing from others. They, they managed somehow to combine being wealthy with being gracious and generous and good stewards. So I'm not saying that it is wrong to be rich But what I am saying is that if your primary goal in life is to make as much money as possible just for the sake of being rich and spending it all on yourself, you will end up being godless. You just will. If all your life's decisions are based on what's most profitable for me, you'll end up saying, well, I can't give to the church then. I can't feed the poor, I can't help those in need, I I can't do anything to serve or help anyone else because that would take away from my money. That's the case, even slightly. You worship money more than God. Remember Jesus said, you can't worship both God and money. 
got to make a choice. You've got to select. You've got to pick one or the other. You either worship your money or you worship with your money. And you worship with your money by being a good steward. I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to give to my church. I'm going to help those in need. I'm going to be generous and loving and gracious. Or to put it another way, you either worship money and use people, or you worship God and use money. Because you can't be simultaneously devoted to both money and God. You've got to choose. You've got to pick which one you're going to prioritize. Do you use people for money, or do you use money for people? And you've got to think about it. You've got to keep this in mind, because your default position is the same as my default position. It's always going to be using people for money. It's always using your money for yourself. It's always taking rather than giving, because at heart, we're selfish. So take the time to reflect on your attitude towards money. I want you to be honest. Are you a worshipper of money? Or do you worship God with your money? Because you can't do both. Paul goes on, verse 19. He says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That is just a fantastic verse. It's one of those verses you, you want to memorize and remember. But some people, they, they twist this verse. They twist it right out of the context it's in. And they say, well, God will give you whatever you want. All you need is enough faith to claim the promise. But that's not actually what this verse is teaching. For starters, I want you to consider who it was written by. Paul, who, until he received that gift from the Philippians... He'd been broke in prison over his life. He knew a whole lot of poverty. I hate to say it, but it just doesn't seem to add up that all of God's children, all of the followers of Jesus will be rich in this life. Some will be. Some in this room, you will be very, very wealthy. But not everyone. Not all of us. The mark of maturity is nothing to do with our affluence or our wealth. The mark of maturity is good stewardship. Paul's not saying here that God will give you everything you want. He says that God will meet your needs. Just so you know, there is a colossal difference between your wants and your needs. This is a huge learning experience for all of us. When we're kids, we just have no distinction in all of this. Food, water, shelter, air, chocolate, computer games a new bike, all the same, just as important as one another. As a parent, not so many parents here today, but as a parent, you have nervous breakdown every time you take your kids to the supermarket. They're having full tantrums in the aisle because you won't let them get the sweets that the supermarket have thoughtfully placed at eye level and within easy reach. When you're three, you say, I need it. I must have it. No, you don't. That's a want not a need. One of the definitions of being a child is a child can't distinguish between want and need. It's like everything is at the same level. Part of what it means to grow up and be mature and be an adult is I can start to distinguish between want and need. And again, I'm not saying that it's a sin to have things you want. 
But you do need to distinguish between that and your needs. You need food. But you don't need to eat out at expensive restaurants the whole time. You need something to drink. But you don't need 15 cappuccinos a day from Starbucks. You don't need it. I'm not saying it's a sin to eat out. I'm not saying it's a sin to have an occasional cup of coffee from Starbucks. It's not a sin even to have a mobile phone. But some of you couldn't even conceive of life without a mobile phone or high-speed internet access. It's at the place next to food, water, shelter, air, mobile phone, high-speed internet. Connectivity, that's what we need for survival. Not necessarily. Some things are nice, but not absolutely necessary. See, needs and wants are different. Paul's at pains here to tell us that God will supply our needs. So we can safely assume that we have what we need. And if we genuinely, really, honestly don't, and we're good stewards with what God has entrusted to us, we can have faith in God that he will provide what we need. So here's the next question. Are you living within your means? Are you living within your means? As opposed to saying, God, I need more. Why don't you say, God, I need to be a better steward and live within my means. If I don't have the money, I shouldn't spend it. You see, we've created something in this culture called credit card debt. We're able to spend way beyond our means to fund those desires that we don't need. And for the privilege we're charged an exorbitant rate of interest and then we're penalised with even more penalties if we dare to fail to meet any payment dates. Paul says elsewhere, the borrower is slave to the lender. Some of you, you are enslaved to your debt. One of the reasons that Paul tells us to be content and to think of others, not just to be covetous, who constantly think about ourselves, is, is good for others but it's also good for us. God loves us, doesn't want us to be in slavery to our debtors. So let me ask you, are you living within your means? Or are you in debt? You put your money towards your needs, or are you spending money you don't have on funding your desires for things that just aren't necessary? And if you're in debt, Are you prioritizing paying off your debt? Or are you merely adding to it by purchasing more and more stuff that, quite honestly, quite frankly, you just don't need? That's what people do. But it's not good stewardship. It's a trap. Don't fall for it. I'm aware. I'm addressing a whole bunch of people who have student loans and that the whole education system is, is built on accruing debt. Now, I'm not saying you don't take your student loan and you you kind of don't eat for for three years when you're at university, but I think there's a danger in the whole student loan thing that it encourages you to rely on debt. That's the way you then enter uh, into life, and and debt is just what you're used to and spending what you haven't got. You just need to be careful. Please be careful. I'm not saying don't take your student loan. You need to, to exist and live. But don't kind of take the attitude, well, I can't afford anything, so I might as well keep blowing money I haven't got, and and, and I'll pay it back one day. No, no, just just need to be careful with debt. If you're here today, and you find that you have been caught 
in the snare of debt and it is spiraling out of control, I'd want to encourage you to get some help. There are people in this church who would love to help you manage your debts, help you to budget within your means. I'd want to say, don't let your fear or pride or embarrassment or stubbornness or just kind of misplaced optimism stop you from doing something about this. Let's keep going. Last couple of things. I say that not because we're nearly done, just to kind of keep you interested. No, 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 we will be done soon. Last couple of things. Verse 20. Paul says to our got nervous laugh there, we will be done soon, I promise. Just two more questions. Verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's my question. Question number six. Do you glorify God in all you do? Do you glorify God in all you do, including contextually here in your finances? If you like, kind of think, well, what does glorifying God really mean? Glorifying God is a way of saying, God is wonderful, and we're to mirror him here on this earth. That's kind of what it means to glorify God. So God's loving, and we glorify him when we're loving. And God's a giver, and we glorify him when we give. And God cares for people, and so we glorify him when we care for people as well. God cares for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the needy. And so as we care for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the needy, in some way we're glorifying God. God loves the church, and so as we give to the church, in some way we are glorifying God. I want you to be honest. Are you right now glorifying God in your finances? If you're not, there is every danger that you have fallen into the trap of hypocrisy. Because if you say, God's loving, maybe even as you worship, you're celebrating God's good and God's a giver and God's so gracious and God cares for you and God loves the church, but you don't reflect that in the way you live, then your actions contradict your beliefs. And by definition, that's what it means to be a hypocrite. You know, the people around us, they learn much more about the depth of our commitment to God from what we do than primarily from what we say. When you tell them that God loves them and you go and serve them, that makes a lot of sense because you're reflecting the glory of God to that person. Some of you, you just need to go away and think about this. How are you glorifying God with your money? And the final question comes from verses 21 and 22. Paul says, Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. He's wrapping up this letter. He says, the brothers who are with me, they send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Paul's talking here about the church, groups of people in the church, families within the church, and the collective church. So here's my final question. Question number seven. Are you committed to helping to build the church? you committed to helping to build the church. Now, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you're not a believer or follower in Jesus, let me be completely clear on this point. Maybe I should have said it sooner. We are not asking you for anything. 
In fact, we don't want you to give at all. We just want you to receive. This teaching about giving that I've been giving you today, it is exclusively for Christians. It is exclusively for followers of Jesus. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, please don't feel guilty, don't feel bad or uncomfortable if you don't give. The reason that God has brought you here is to receive, to receive Jesus as God and Saviour, to receive Jesus who died to take away your sins, to receive Jesus who lives to change your life. We don't want your money. We want you to receive Jesus. But for those of you who do know Jesus, the question is, are you a giver or are you a taker? Are you committed to helping the forward progress of the church? I was chatting the other week to a friend of mine who leads another church. I've got two back-to-back meetings on a Sunday morning, both in the same venue. And they're just about to start their second meeting, and the uh, musicians are just about to kind of start playing, and uh, all eyes are looking at the screens for what song are we going to sing first, and they're just blank. As everyone looks at the chief projectionist, I mean, why is he not doing what he should be doing to get the words up? No action at all. Uh, At which point, people look to where the projector is, or should have been, and they find the projector has gone. It's been stolen by someone who is in the first meeting. Now, my point is, the world is filled with takers, and it even infiltrates the church. And I'll be watching those projectors at the end for dear life. But as God's people, we're not supposed to be takers, we're supposed to be givers. I'm expecting a third projector to appear there or something, I don't know. But some people, you know, it's like they come to the church with the same attitude as the thief that takes the projector. Maybe you're thinking, that's crazy, I'd never steal the projector. But what's your attitude when you come? Do you come solely to take, or do you look to give as well? I'm not just talking about financial giving here. It might be a contribution in the worship. It might be serving in some way. It might be through showing hospitality. It might be giving forgiveness or giving people the benefit of the doubt. Now look, I'm not looking to condemn anyone. not looking to lay a whole load of guilt on anyone. But I am looking to challenge you. Are you a giver or are you a taker? Because if you're a Christian, I hope you're getting the message, you're called to be like Jesus. You're called to be a giver. And then Paul concludes this letter by saying this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now I know we're drawing to a close. And I know I've said finally at least three times. But this is crucially important, so please don't switch off. You see, if Paul hadn't concluded with that word, grace, this would all be legalism and condemning and guilt-inducing. It'd be like, give your money or God will be angry with you. Give your money or God won't love you. Give your money or you won't get to heaven. That's not Paul's message. That's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying that, This will all be accomplished, contentment and good stewardship and living to reflect the glory of God and helping the church in this city and the ends of the earth. All of that can be accomplished, will be accomplished in one way and one way only. And that's by the grace of God. So let me try and wrap this up by just explaining the grace of God. 
If you remember, I started off by saying that God is a giver. It begins and ends with grace. I don't deserve God to love me. He just does. It's unmerited grace. I don't deserve Jesus to live, die and rise for me. But that's what he's done for me. It's just all grace. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve God to help me right now. I don't deserve any of the good things that I have in my life. It is all because of grace. Christianity is about grace, which makes it different from every other world religion. We don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. We're saved by grace alone. It's totally a gift of God. So we have faith in Jesus. God gives us freely the gift of his Son for the forgiveness of our sins. And so, as a result, we give joyfully. We give generously. We give abundantly. Not to try and earn God's favor. Not even to try and pay him back, but in response to his grace. Of course, I guess there's a twisted, perverted way of thinking that concludes, well, if God loves me anyway, there's no point in giving. But if you've genuinely experienced God's grace at work in your life, you won't think like that. I mean, how could you? Why would you? If if the God who has given everything for me calls me to express my trust in him by giving to others, I'm going to consider it a joy and a privilege. It's a way of demonstrating my love and my worship and my confidence in him. That's the way the Philippians understood it. And I want to call all of you to follow their example.